0: Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 62 with Amandine Lepop, co-founder and COO of Element, the software startup behind Matrix, an open standard for secure, decentralized, real-time communication, which you can learn more about at matrix.org. This episode was recorded in early February at the inaugural State of Open Conference, or SOCON, which was held in London at the QE2 Center in Parliament Square. SOCON was made possible by the inexorable tenacity of Amanda Brock, who leads an organization called open UK and is the editor of the 2022 Oxford University Press book, Open Source Law Policy and Practice, second edition. If you're an open source founder and you haven't read this book, go to Amazon right now and order it. If you can travel to London next year, I hope to see you at SOCON 2024. If it's half as fabulous as this year's event, you definitely should not miss it. I guess that's enough gushing about SoCon. Let's get on with the interview with Amandine. Amandine, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: As one of the founders, I have to ask, what's the origin story of Element? And at what point did you think about starting Matrix, the open source repository, and and Matrix the Protocol?
1: So it goes back to almost nine years now in 2014, where we were a team working, uh, selling commercial messaging apps to telcos uh, incubated in a big corporation called Amdocs. After a while, we were really annoyed by the fact uh, that whatever we did with our apps, WhatsApp would always win. WhatsApp would always be on the front page of the Telco's website next to the app we were building for them. And this fragmentation, even from a user perspective, is really bad. For email, I can talk to anyone with my phone and can send SMS and call people wherever phone they use, whatever network they're on. Why on chat do I have to actually install a new app every time someone wants to use a new app? So we came to uh, Amdocs and proposed them to actually try to fix this by creating an open standard for communication, having built on top of all the other existing standards. Before, we had learned a lot and thought that with a professional team, we would be able to potentially bring something to the world which was um, able to answer the needs that we had of interoperability for chat and messaging voiceover IP.
0: That sort of answers my question, but you're working at amdocs and you're and you're thinking well wouldn't it be great if we could federate these chat servers but um, how does that lead to actually starting an, an open source project and the founding of the company
1: So to actually create the open standard and the open protocol, we set it up as an open source project. So from within Amdocs, we set up completely something independent with a new brand, completely open source. And we started working on it for three years, actually building the reference implementations, defining the spec, etc. After three years, there were other companies building on top of Matrix and monetizing it, like Ericsson, for example, selling communication systems for banks in Sweden, whilst the core team, we were still building the, <laughs> the project and not funding it. So based on that, we thought that it would be better to actually set up an independent company to try to monetize Matrix on the side. So that's when we actually spun out of Amdocs, set up Element as the commercial company, which builds the flagship app itself called Element, and selling services and proprietary products on top of Matrix. And we also set up the Matrix Foundation as an independent non-profit, which is the custodian of the standard. Itself.
0: The Matrix Foundation governs the protocol but it also has some software in there. There's a reference implementation I think in Python. Who contributes the code to that software project? Is it mostly element or is there are there community contributions?
1: Basically, Element contributes a lot of code towards the reference implementations of servers and SDKs and some of the application services. And it's literally donating the IP to the foundation so that it's uh, completely independent from the commercial entity. But beyond that, so Element contributes the reference implementation server Synapse. We also have another server called Android and all the various SDKs for iOS, Android, etc. But then the community on the other side is actually building their own Projects and building their own reference implementation, oh, sorry, their own implemented servers, their own SDKs, bridges, etc. So, whilst Elements contributes a lot to some of these projects, which are the ones which are um, often used in production by governments or enterprises, the community is very vibrant. And there, are, I think we're close to 5,000 uh, contributors across the entire Matrix project and the different repos.
0: So the, there are a number of communications platforms out there. We've actually had ENTN from Mattermost and Gabriel Engel from Rocket. And there's Slack, of course, is out there. What makes the Element commercial offering different? And why do we need another communication platform?
1: So if you're just trying to have your own communication system that you can run yourself, then yes, you may want to just go to Mattermost or RocketChat. The difference with Element is the fact it's built on the open standard. So it means that once you run your Element and Matrix deployment, you can communicate to any other deployments out there. The same way that when you deploy a mail server, it federates with all the all other email servers out there. And actually, RocketChat actually built a bridge to Matrix. So now RocketChat can communicate with Element without problem. And the interesting thing is. That was under the impulsion of the Swedish government, which brought all its vendors into one room and say, guys, we cannot use SaaS solutions for our communications. We don't want to designate one vendor for all the government. Ministries should be able to choose the app they want to use. So you have to federate. You have to interoperate, figure it out, find something. By the way, there is this standard called Matrix that... (laughs) should do the job. But that means that today, if you use RocketChat, you are able to participate in the Matrix network. So the interesting thing is also that when you use Matrix for your communication as a government, for example, it really solves the political problem because different ministries uh, will own their own communication. They will deploy their own servers. They run it wherever they want, under the security they want. But yet they're able to participate in the wider network and the ownership of the discussion is shared between the two. So you completely skip over the shall shall we use your system or my system to to work together on this project.
0: So here at the conference, I noticed that there's a matrix booth, but there's no element booth. Why did you feel that it was the right thing to do to promote matrix and, and not the commercial company here?
1: It felt more aligned with the idea of Open UK in terms of let's like, build a open source and the community side of things, basically the same way that for them uh, this weekend we had the Matrix. It's Matrix which is being most represented. We didn't even have an Element sticker or an Element banner out there, even if Element is open source too. But really trying to grow the ecosystem and the community for Matrix.
0: This is a little bit of ancient history, and, you, and but do you remember a platform called Diaspora? Was Diaspora? Were you thinking about Diaspora at all when you when you started Ma- Matrix?
1: So the thing is that we are addressing very much the uh, social network side of things, whilst we wanted to go for the full communication, real time communication system in terms of. Whether we thought about them when we chose the uh, decentralized structure, actually it's more inspired from Git. And basically the idea of replicating the content of uh, the conversation and the history of the conversation at every server.
0: Let's talk a little more about the community. What areas do you think the community makes the most contributions? Is it in bridges, bots, or widgets, which is like how you extend the functionality? Or is it in the core server? Where, Where do you see the most activity from the community?
1: So the way we built matrix is to make sure that the development of clients were super easy. Because what we saw in the past is every time people wanting to add chat in their communication systems, everyone thinks it's easy, it's just sending a message. And then if you want the actual features of history, etc., it's tough. So we wanted to provide an easy way for any web developer to add chat to their system. So the all the Complicated stuff is in the server with a very simple client API, client server API, just HTTP, HTTP API that anyone can use. It means that we have a lot of contribution for clients. There are a ton of clients out there, all sorts of clients from command line to mobile, etc. We even have clients running on uh, Nintendo DS, for example, and a lot of bridges as well, because people want to connect to existing existing networks out there. So they tend to build their own bridges. There is also contribution to the core, um, to Synapse itself. And uh, we actually have the REST SDK as a new core project, which is uh, very, it's uh, led a lot by the community, uh, I think it's a f- quarter or a, a third of the developers actually are not employed by Element, and it's like on the core contributors on this uh, on this project. And it doesn't even have an internal room; it's just a, everything is really in the open for this uh, the Rust SDK.
0: So Element is very transparent about the monetization strategy. It's really simple. It's based on monthly active users, and it looks like it's the same price whether you host it yourself or whether it's it's SaaS. Can you talk a little bit about the logic behind the pricing model? How did you get here? And were there other pricing models? And did you did you get it right the first time?
1: Uh, pricing models are complicated. <laughs> So when we started, we thought that the easiest way to get going would be to provide it as a SaaS platform, because it's end-to-end encrypted and based on an open standard. So even if we run it for people, it means we don't see what's inside, what's happening on the platform due to the encryption. And people can take the data and move it to their own server later on if they want. The fact is, our customers actually want to self-host be it on-premise or in a cloud. So we had to uh, basically make sure that the um, on-premise hosting was actually um, uh, served very well. So that's why we ended up, this is, I don't know which iteration of pricing model it is, but it's definitely not the first one. And yeah, the idea was like, okay, let's try to simplify one single price in the cloud or on-premise. It should be the same because in the end, it's pretty much the same service. I think we are about to release, unless we had, we released a couple of weeks ago, I can remember a new pricing model, which is a bit like more integrated, basically, where here we had, I think it was 3 or $4 a user a month, and then you can add add add-ons on top of it. But we're trying to build packages where basically the add-ons are included, but the total price is maybe higher. So have more of a split like this.
0: So what does a sales motion look like? Do people download one of the open source and find you? So is it more, you know, an inbound motion or... Are you out there trying to find like who wants the service? Like, what what is the sales? How's the you? How have you built the sales team?
1: We hired our first salesperson three years after starting the company because everything was coming inbound. And basically, it's very much the community being here and enthusiastic. And then you have people who try it on personally or investigate it, and then bring it in house and suggest it to their government or their enterprise as something that uh, would be useful. So the community has very much been our main uh, source of leads. And so many times you have a first customer call and then you see one guy sitting at the back of the room with a matrix hoodie and it's the one who doesn't say anything. But you know that it's the guy that they actually, people actually listen to and trust because from a technical perspective, they are the expert. So we now have a sales team and we've done uh, focus a lot on making sure we have content and marketing, et cetera, Do a bit of outbound, but yes, the the fact that our tech is good and techies know it is good is our best selling point and our visibility as um, as Matrix as well.
0: Do you have you found that there's some natural segmentation in the market, either vertical or by application? Like like like, how does it break down? And and you know, it seems like it can be used by so many organizations. So does that drive your marketing department crazy?
1: Yeah, basically, it's a, it's tough to focus when you can be used by anyone. Basically, it can solve any, anyone's problem. When we started, we looked at, before setting up Element, we looked at the different business model to figure out how are we going to monetize it to actually fund the development. We ended up with 72 business models. We went for one, which we thought would be pretty easy, which is Uh, enterprise collaboration and starting on SaaS, etc. We looked at uh, one of them was public sector communication. So that's a good match, but oh my God, no way we're getting into this. It's going to be endless sales cycle tenders. No way. Guess who knocked at the door (laughs) the day we actually spun out? It was the French government, because in the end, it's such a good product market fit in terms of No vendor lock-in because it's open source and open standard ability to run yourself and to an encrypted, decentralized, so it matches the organization and each ministry can have their own deployment. So we have really seen a good product market fit there as either generic collaboration tool like French government, for example, uses very much as a team's replacement or also for uh, specific use cases like defense. Because you can take Matrix into extreme environments, you can use it peer-to-peer in a mesh network, you can use it low bandwidth on uh, ships. So the US Navy is trialing it on ships, each ship has their own server. And if your submarine is actually going down, loses contact with the network. They still can talk locally, and when they come up, then it merges the history, and they can get back in contact and see what has been happening with the rest of the fleet. So all sorts of very specific use cases uh, which have been working. But overall, it's very much, we need sovereign communication, and to an encrypted, we need to replace WhatsApp because it's not compliant uh, and it's centralized, and we need to replace Teams because it's not even encrypted and centralized.
0: So you're still a pretty young company. Uh, when was the company actually founded?
1: Element was founded in 2017.
0: Okay, so uh, have you built out the partner network at all? And do part are partners helping you deliver, or have partners? you know, become a distribution channel for you at all yet?
1: We're just starting. Literally, we're still building up our first contracts, et cetera, because we're seeing a lot of companies who are actually helping institutions deploy their own NextCloud or uh, what was it, LibreOffice and this sort of things. And now they're coming to these guys saying, can I have my element deployment as well, please? So there's this sort of partnerships that we're looking at, but uh, it's very, very much the beginning.
0: Maybe I can digress back into the tech, or maybe this is a tech slash business uh, question, but it seems to me like one of the challenges around a federated system would be trust. Yes, I could connect to anybody, but if I'm a submarine, how do I know I'm not connecting to an enemy's ship? Yes, I can connect to anyone, but how do you know who you can trust?
1: You can set up secure border gateways, for example, which are going to give you an opportunity to apply business logic to it. It's like for example, in the French deployment, you don't necessarily want anyone to be able to message the top layers of the government. You want to put like civil servants in the government can invite external people, civilians, into a discussion. But the other way around is not true. So you have tools like this, which says, oh, your server can connect to anyone or your server can only connect to this subset of domains and this sort of thing. So we rely on additional tools around it to do that. What
0: are your plans to foster growth in the ecosystem? And so not just the open source contributors, but also sort of other companies who maybe have a commercial interest in working with either the matrix protocol or or, The core Matrix open source project.
1: The idea from the start was to create Matrix as a big, as the biggest ecosystem as possible. And Element being the leader of it, but maybe like 10% market share. The same way that Google is probably the leader of the web market, but it's like tiny market share in comparison. It's just a very big market. We are trying to encourage companies to build on top of it and support them. We are setting up within the foundation, we want to set up at some point the ability to provide grants. So we're setting up a membership model within the foundation and then the ability to actually be able to funnel this money to other people contributing to the ecosystem so that's the kind of things we're trying to do but we are very very conscious about making sure that others have the space to grow within the matrix ecosystem so that it's basically rising up the the sea for everyone
0: one of the key differentiators for element is this aspect of decentralization and federation um, between servers. But that's not proprietary. Are you ever concerned that maybe your key differentiator is also open and maybe over time not unique?
1: So the beauty of an open ecosystem is that people will compete on value. So it's up to everyone to find where the best value lies and bring their own, their own expertise. So far we have been relying a lot on the fact that we've been the expert in matrix, having created it. So we are the best to run servers at scales and this, at scale and this sort of thing. So people come to us. We are at the point where other companies are now competing with us at that level, providing hosting. So we need to bring our expertise into more specific use cases. And maybe that's this specific proprietary product for use cases like uh, around security and these sort of things that we can build proprietary and can license because we know best how the protocol works and we can go around, around these things. So yeah, it's uh, up to us to be creative. Another thing is that. If the the vision is that everyone would be communicating uh, on the, via Matrix in a few years from now, and some of them will be using Elements, some of them will be using other applications out there. But we do provide today as Elements a kind of app store where you can install an integration to GitHub or a bridge to Slack, etc. And... One idea is that this app store could be would be available to any other applications out there, and can become one of the main points of monetization potentially for Element in the long term.
0: So, on the product side, which product are you the most excited about? Do you think has the most growth potential, and where you're investing perhaps more in R and D?
1: Right now, we are rewriting the Element application, especially on mobile, uh, based on a common Rust SDK. So far, we had an iOS and Android SDKs. So common Rust SDK, rewriting it from scratch using a Swift and Kotlin for Android. So basically, trying to get to a point where Element is as... Performant and fast as Telegram with a user interface, which is super simple because that's been our biggest problem so far. Element has been very slow and bloated and that's really hindered the growth of Matrix as a whole. So this is the thing where we are investing a lot and it should be out in the uh, public test flight for iOS next week, hopefully, or next couple, next few weeks. And it's really exciting because it's like you started with one of the, some of the biggest accounts and it's like a hundred milliseconds start. It's really nice.
0: We're here in Europe and you're, you're, the founders are are European. Do you think that there are any challenges about being in Europe versus Silicon Valley. And um, what's been your experience of um, a tech startup in Europe?
1: Our market is very much around privacy, data data sovereignty, and these sort of things, which is huge in Europe. So we've somehow, it's probably easier for us to be based in Europe because we have Germany, we have France, and they're all so advanced on this angle of data sovereignty and privacy. I think that was really good for us. And it's now, the challenge is now to cross the Atlantic and uh, see on the other side if we can address this market as well. Because in the US, as far as I see it, the cloud seemed to be pretty much the default and it's less questioned than here.
0: So every startup is kind of a marathon and an emotional roller coaster. Um, Do you have any advice for entrepreneurs, um, especially entrepreneurs who are looking to use open source as part of their business model?
1: Uh, We just had an interesting panel around the community side of things. So one of my advice would be if you are actually wanting to do it, the, an open source startup think about why if you want to do it right really take care of your community because an open source company without a community is it's missing the point of doing the open source uh, so um make sure you manage to grow a nice uh, community because this will help you so much and uh, it really makes them they experience something different and yeah otherwise but just usual tech entrepreneur things <laughs> in terms of make sure you stay alive because if you don't, then you cannot take care of the rest of the <laughs> I have a
0: related question for you. Um, so we need more women founder role models for the next generation of open source founders. Do you have any advice for women founders?
1: It's always hard for me to to talk about this because I've never felt that I've been hindered as a woman. I have the feeling that the problem is more that early on, it's like the work needs to be done at school level, it feels like. It's education from uh, young kids to understand that no tech is not just for boys and yes, everyone can be involved. And as a woman founder, I think we always tend to, uh, it's the things we hear quite a lot, but tend to not push and not take the seat at the table. And so I think we need to be careful about that when as, um, as women, basically uh, it's, we tend to just like intervene when we think it's necessary. And, but it, we need to be a bit more outspoken and push it a bit more because otherwise the people around who just more pushy will just walk over, basically, even if they're less competent.
0: Amadeen, thank you so much for joining me today. I know you have a busy schedule, probably flights to catch. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Special thanks to Amanda Brock and the whole Open UK team for working so hard to launch the State of Open Conference. It was really amazing. Thank you. Cool graphics from Kamal Bhattacharji, music from Broke for Free, Chris Zabriskie, and Lee Rosevier. Next week, as promised, Liz Rice from ISO IsoValent, who's going to tell us about the Cilium project and all the cool things they're doing. Until next time, this is Mike Schwartz, and thanks for listening to Open Source Underdogs.